you could have that open in front of you. So we're dealing with the period in Israel's history when kings reigned. So you remember that the children of Israel went into Egypt to escape famine. And after about 440 years, they were led out by God under the leadership of Moses. And then they had 40 years or so in the wilderness. And then under Joshua's leadership, they entered the promised land. And their subjugation of the land achieved its peak under David and Solomon. And uh, at that point, things start to go badly wrong. Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, who succeeded him to the throne, but he had unwisely, and as a result, there was schism. And Jeroboam, son of Nebat, became king of the ten northern tribes, perhaps somewhat confusingly termed Israel, and two tribes in the south, Judah, and remained under Rehoboam. That was the great schism in the kingdom, And uh, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was politically astute. And he recognized that the challenge he faced in maintaining his kingdom was that the people had to go to the temple several times a year to perform the different festivals and rites that the Lord required of them. But if they went to the temple, that was in Judah's area. And so there was a risk that there would be continual pressure to reunite the split kingdoms. And he and his successors would therefore lose their throne, and that was something he wished to avoid. So he set up uh, locations of worship um, in Dan and Bethel, where there were golden calves. And he said to the people, here are your gods. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. You can worship here. And throughout the book of Kings, that is the sin, the primary sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. As we read the history, you read through the book of 1 Kings, you'll find that each of the kings in turn, the comment towards the end of their lives is that they followed in the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. False gods located away from Jerusalem, leading the people astray. But things got worse, and they got worse with the ascension of the, or accession of the seventh king of the northern kingdoms, this man Ahab. In verse 29 of the previous chapter, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And then in verse 31 it says, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which all his predecessors had done, he, to make matters much worse, took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So not only now have you got golden calves for people to worship, but actually Ahab builds a temple to Baal, and in due course Asherah, the queen goddess. He really steps away from serving Yahweh. So things are going from bad to worse amongst the majority of God's people. 
godliness, idol godlessness, idol worship, rebellion, refusal to obey God's word. And that's a situation we're faced with as we come to chapter 17. And you may remember last time we looked at Hiel, Hiel who built um, Jericho. Um, there were all sorts of reasons why that was a particularly bad thing to do. And it indicated a real move away from obeying what God had told them to do, to rely instead on human wisdom and their own strength and wisdom. Ahab was a fairly savvy individual. Actually, under his reign, the northern kingdom prospered economically. But spiritually, it's falling apart. Perhaps you can immediately think of our own day. Um, I'm making no political comments now, but um, we live in in a land of relative plenty, don't we? Um, Economically, we have many, many privileges, and it's just... It can be very depressing, can't it, to see how small-minded people can be about complaining of first-world problems, as we call them, when so many in the world lack even basic things like drinking water and sanitation and and that the health disparities in the world are just vast. So we live in, in a land of relative economic prosperity, and whatever you think of our governments within the United Kingdom, They are seeking to encourage material well-being and so on. But I think we can empathize a bit, can't we, in terms of the spiritual situation? It seems to be going from bad to worse. Not that I wish to be pessimistic, and we see there are reasons not to be pessimistic. But I'm just saying that there are reasons perhaps why we can empathize with the situation that's found here. This is real history. These are real people. This all really happened. And suddenly, in the midst of what for a faithful Israelite was a grim and deteriorating picture, this man, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead, appears. As it were, from nowhere. There's nothing in Kings before this that has any reference to this bloke, Elijah. And actually, we know next to nothing about him. Um, We have somebody coming to be your minister. Um, I've no doubt that you found out lots of things about him. Um, The names of his children, for example, his wife, his previous experience, where he studied, how he did academically, how things have gone in his church, what his family connections are, and and, how well he's revered in, in the Free Church of Scotland, and a whole range of things that you'll be interested to know. But if you were here then... You'd know nothing about Elijah. He just bursts onto the scene. And there's this tremendous moment of confrontation. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab in verse 1 of chapter 17, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Ahab's been... um, doing his thing. He's contracted this marriage with Jezebel, which politically was very astute. The country economically is doing quite well. He's, um, he's uh, increased investment in the armed forces. And uh, the country is, is, you know, at some levels, the country looks to be doing well. But he's introduced all this worship of Baal and Asherah. 
And something must be done. Something must be done if God's people are to be provided and protected and and taught what is true and right and good. It looked grim. And suddenly this man appears. But actually, the hope is not in the man, is it? Do you see what Elijah says? As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be, and so on. Baal was a fertility god. He was the god of rain especially. Um, He's symbolized in the stone carvings of him with, with lightning bolts because of the storms and thunder and lightning and so on. But each year... In their mythology, um, Baal was subjected to death by their god, Mot, who was their god of the underworld. And during the period that Baal was dead, the country would be dry. But then Baal would revive, and he would open the windows of heaven, and there would be rain on the land. You'll understand this as an agrarian community. They don't have a major river like the Nile. And so the people were, were heavily dependent on rain. Without rain and dew in the morning, um, they would die. They would starve and die. And so Elijah comes and his first challenge is, I stand before the living God. Your God, when there is drought, is dead. But not Yahweh. But there won't be rain or dew these years unless I say so and I stand before the living God. In other words, if I may, the whole picture here is not to do with a a man who we might imagine in all kinds of ways, can't we? I imagine tall, bearded, quite strong, wearing funny sort of bits of leather and stuff. I mean, I don't know what he looked like, but that, he's not the center of this. The center of this is the living God and his word. And I hope as we read through the chapter, he picked up so frequently, the narrator says, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord was. He spoke the word of the Lord. So immediately after he gives this challenge um, to King Ahab, verse 2, and the word of the Lord came to him. So let me try and apply that to start with. Um, There's lots going on. I know some of you are extremely busy at home, at work, um, with your employment, with family matters, with studies, all these kind of things. There's a huge amount that can fill our minds And we can be misled to some extent in thinking that the important things of the world are the things that the politicians and others, the movers and shakers, are doing. You know, is the most important thing that's going on at the moment preparations in Glasgow to host a global summit on the environment? Is that the most important thing? Now, some of you will feel it is very important, and others of you perhaps will feel it's less so. But the point I'm trying to make is it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is God's word. That's what's happening here. And that is true today just as much as it was then. In all the challenges you're facing, in all the things that you have to deal with every day, 
The most important thing is not the political or the military or anything else. It's the word of God. Perhaps one illustration of that is the fact that the way the scriptures are so persecuted, if that's quite the right word. A little bit of history here. The Council of Toulouse in 1229 decreed, we prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. We most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. The church, the church, forbidding Christians to have scripture. John Wycliffe, who first translated the Bible into English, condemned as a heretic by the Ecumenical Council of Constance in 1415. By the council's decrees, Wycliffe's bones were exhumed and publicly burned, and the ashes were thrown into the river Swift. In 1536, William Tyndale, who has a statue not too far from here on embankment, was burned at the stake. He was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English and distributing copies in England. Not so long ago, and I confess I haven't got the latest list, um, but at the moment, scriptures are forbidden, and possession of them is threatened with death or imprisonment in North Korea, Afghanistan, Algeria, China, Comoros, Djibouti, Iran, Libya, Maldives, Mauritania, Morocco, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Tunisia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Yemen. Just some of the countries where just to have a Bible can cost you your life. And brothers and sisters, surely the challenge for you and I is, um, how much do we value this? It's so freely available to us, isn't it? You can get them for free. On your phone, you can download it. And I think my wife says she's got 400 different versions on her phone. But what are we doing with this? To what extent is this, as we've sung and thought this morning, the rule of our life? And do we truly recognize this as the word of God? Can I really encourage you to to ponder that? I think that's so important for us and it's so easy practically to let it slip. Elijah has this tremendous moment of challenge with Ahab. Ahab, a leading idolater and and wrecking God's witness, um, persecuting prophets in due course with Jezebel, putting them to death. And after he's had this confrontation, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the book Cherith. And then we have this amazing account, don't we, of unclean birds, ravens, um, who love carrion, roadkill as we would think of it probably. Um, They're bringing him his food. It's rather unusual, isn't it? Um, It's not the takeaway of choice for me. Um, But for Elijah, it's a tremendous provision. He goes and hides himself, and he's fed morning and evening with bread and flesh, um, and he has as much water as he wants to drink. Now, what's going on? Now, some argue that what's happening here is that Elijah had put himself right in the firing line, and of course he had, with um, Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked queen. I mean, he's hiding so that his life may be preserved. Well, yes, that's true, but I don't think that's the primary issue here. The primary issue is, how will the people hear from God? 
if Elijah is out of the picture. And you will know, those of you who know your scriptures, that one of the severest, most severe judgments that God gives people is to leave them to themselves. Got Paul explaining at the start of Romans that God just leaves people to their own devices um, without his word and without um, his interaction with them. And God does this now to his people. For the time that this dreadful drought is going to weigh so heavily on the land, the people are without the word of God. It's part of God's curse. You may remember that Moses, to whom God reveals so much of of the challenges that the people would face, Moses recited all the words to the people and so on. And when he had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, and I'm in Deuteronomy 32 here, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Is that how we think about scripture? It's not an empty word, it's our very life. The people under God's curse, the punishment of Deuteronomy 28 and so on, they are now going to find that they are both without God's word and that God is going to turn the rain to dust and they will suffer the consequences of their rebellion against God. And it's so easy, isn't it, for us to read this and think, oh, yes, I mean, that all happened so long ago and it was just what happened then. But if you reflect just for a moment, surely you'll see that it's just the same today. That if God's word is despised and ejected, what fills in its place is so corrupting and harmful to human well-being. God's judgments are terrible and they're terrible because being without him is the final worst curse. And so he's sent away for what will turn out to be three years and uh, the, the people don't see him. They don't hear God's word. But one other thing here which I think we should note as we go by which is Elijah is provided for, remarkably he's provided for. The ravens come and they feed him, and there's water in the brook Cherith. But as the drought gets worse and worse, the brook Cherith gets less and less. Now here's a man who has done exactly what God has commanded him to do, who's experiencing miraculous provision by these unclean ravens, But each day, he can see the water supply is drying up. What would you think? I I just find it extraordinary, really, that that the Lord has something to teach Elijah that, that is really, really visceral. Elijah knows that that the land is dying because of drought, but it looks like he is going to suffer pain, despite his faithfulness. On the one hand, the birds are still delivering the food, but without water, he will die. And so even as he serves the Lord God in this remote, 
he is being tested. And, and I think perhaps the obvious reflection on this is that if I try to preach you a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that whatever else is going on, God wants to bless you richly with health and wealth and lots of money, um, I would obviously be preaching to you a lie. Because look here, here's an amazing hero of the faith, and yet he's being tested in this most fundamental way. He doesn't have prosperity and he doesn't have wealth. By God's grace, he's still healthy. That's, that's it. In due course, then, the Lord speaks again. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Well, <laughs> it's just getting more and more extraordinary. Sidon is where Jezebel comes from. Ethbaal is the king of Sidon, and he's Jezebel's dad. This is the very epicenter of Baal worship. Why would God's prophet leave Israel, the promised land, to go to this godless foreign pagan land and live there? But that's what God commands, and so that's what Elijah does. He gets to Zarephath, And when he comes to the gate of the city, there's this widow. And then there's this very um, pathetic engagement, isn't there? He asks for water. She goes to get him some water. And then he asks, please feed me something. And she says, my son and I, we've reached the end. We've just got a little left now. I'm going to make our final meal. And then we're just going to sit, presumably, and die. I can't imagine that. The Lord blessed us with two daughters. I just cannot imagine what it would be like to find myself in such want and deprivation that I had to say to my wife and girls, Mummy's going to fix the final meal, and then we're just going to sit and waste away until we're dead. It's horrendous. And this is the reality of God's judgment on sin. And I find when when people say, I really struggle with the idea that God would judge, I really struggle with the idea that God would send people to hell, that these are things that just seem too awful. Here's the reality. I can't faithfully stand before you and say, this was some kind of tragic mistake. It wasn't. This was God's determined, resolute punishment on a people who refused to have him and turned from him. And what is true for them, my friend, will ultimately be true for us as well. There is no hope. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. But the woman is not to die this horrible, lingering death from starvation. The Lord provides miraculously this flower in a jar and the oil in the jug. And remarkably, if I was fixing the final meal for Joe and the girls, or Joe was fixing it and somebody came and said, no, uh, give it to me first, um, I, I don't know. I, I 
Not sure I'd be particularly warm to that idea. I mean, okay, it's the final meal, so it's not going to achieve a huge amount, but mates, uh, go and sort yourself out, okay? We're looking after ourselves here. But that's not what, he, what she does, is it? There's something going on in her, and I'm not sure that I understand entirely, but she says to him, um, as the Lord your God lives, and she uses God's covenant name as Yahweh your God lives, I have nothing baked. So she recognizes that he is a prophet of the living God, and although she says it's your God, she nevertheless obeys, and her obedience brings her blessing. So, and it's amazing, isn't it? Elijah is so compassionate. Um, she says, this, this is the position I'm in. It's awful and grim, and we're going to eat it and die. And he says, do not fear. Do not fear. And perhaps you'll recognize in that something of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's dealing with his own disciples, um, when they're in trouble and so on, one of the first things he says to them is, do not fear. Our God is a compassionate and gracious God. Do not fear, do as you've said, but first of all, prioritize me. Because, and then it's the word. So do you see how strong this link is in throughout this whole passage? It's not about Elijah, it's about God's word. Because this is what God says. The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, and so on, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She goes and she does as he said, and she and her household eat. And so here's Elijah now. He's in Zarephath, in enemy territory, hidden still. And there were lots of, there were lots of alternatives, weren't there? You remember that we read in the next chapter that Obadiah has been keeping a hundred of the prophets by fifties in caves and providing for them. So, and later on, when Elijah says, you know, it's just me, God says, no, no, there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So this wasn't the only way that Elijah could have been preserved. God's word could have been kept. But it's the way God chose because there are all sorts of lessons to be learned from us. And one is here that obedience and trust in God's word means that we will ultimately have what we need. Remember that Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. We have here, extraordinarily, the one thing that will last forever. All of this, all of you, will all go. Not this. This remains. But, then there's a tragedy. Verse 17 after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. It's so severe, he dies. And then she cries out, you know, why, why has this happened? How could this be so terrible? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance, verse 18, and to cause the death of my son? She recognizes that she indeed is a sinner. And then Elijah takes the son. And isn't it remarkable, verse 20, doesn't he? He takes him up to the chamber where he lodged and he lays him on his bed and then what does he do? There's no implement. He hasn't got Aaron's rod that he can lay on him. There's nothing special. Elijah prays. He cries to the Lord. He pleads the widow's case. He begs the Lord to come and give this lad life again. And the Lord listens to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came to him again. 
But do you see why this is so significant? The real significance of this comes at the very end of verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. You see, we're back to the word of God and whether or not it's true and trustworthy. Now, Elijah is the first person recorded in scripture who is used by God to restore life to somebody who's dead. He's not the only person who does that, but he's the first. And in that, I want to suggest we see the pattern that will be gloriously fulfilled in the final Elijah, if I put it that way. The Lord Jesus Christ, he raised Jairus' daughter, and the widow of Nain's son. He called Lazarus from the grave. And then he declared that he had power not only to lay down his life, but to take it again. This woman saw God's power in resurrection life and said, I recognize this as the truth of God's word. And the challenge for you and I this morning, as those who have the fullness of the New Testament to deal with, is this. You've got this example from the old, but you've got the amazing example of the Lord Jesus Christ. His ability to raise from the dead, not only dead humans, but to bring himself by the power of the eternal spirit from death to life. God's word is extraordinarily powerful. You know from your catechism that all that we have was created by the power of his word in the space of six days and all very good. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his word, brings life to the dead. You and I are born into this world and spiritually dead. The word of Jesus Christ brings for us eternal life. And my friend, the challenge for you this morning is, uh, we've looked at what happened in the era of the kings. And we've seen this woman devastated by death, see her son raised and recognize in that the power of the living word of God. And I want to say to each of you this morning, do you recognize in the Lord Jesus Christ the word of God the power that gives eternal life. Only Elijah could do this for this woman. Only Jesus can give you life in all its fullness. The majority of people appear to have been happy following Baal, Asherah, and the godless life that appeared to them to bring some measure of reward. But God was not content to leave the people to die in their sin, so he sent his man. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. His son brings eternal life. My friend, 
Have you seen that? Do you know that? Will you today acknowledge as this woman did that God's word in Jesus is our true and glorious hope?